Danny wanted to make sure to start the new year off with a bang, so they requested that I preach this morning. Uh, but we can pray for Jim and his son, Jake. They have been over in India for a week doing the Lord's work, and they're re- returning tomorrow so we can keep them in our prayers. Uh, but let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and we pray that your word would shape and guide our hearts. It would engage us, Lord, to make us look more like Christ as we leave this morning and less like the world. And it's through that authority, through your word, Lord, that we see Christ, and we look like Christ, and we know Christ, and we want to share Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened up his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. Now many of you this morning are probably familiar with those words, those teachings of Jesus, known as the Beatitudes or the Blessings. And they're found in a larger work in Matthew known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's the introduction for that sermon. Now people during Jesus' time, they didn't go from town to town saying, Hey, did you just hear Jesus' latest sermon? I, I think it was titled Sermon on the Mount. But the words and the teachings in the sermon, Matthew 5 through 7, including the introduction, those Beatitudes, they they serve as an overall uh, introduction to Jesus' teaching throughout his ministry on the kingdom of heaven, on his kingdom. And these eight or nine Beatitudes in the beginning of the sermon are not mere moral teachings. Jesus isn't saying, do or be these things and you will be saved. Rather, as his disciples are sitting Listening to his teaching, he's describing for them those who have already been saved. And did you notice that in the Beatitudes that Jesus warned three times that those who live this way, his disciples will be persecuted three times, either verbally or physically? That's because Jesus knows, and he'll later later teach his disciples, that just as the world will reject me, so too will they reject those who carry my message, who carry the truth, who's preached the gospel, a gospel that creates conflict, that divides the light between the dark. And so what we see in the Beatitudes is not only how God's people should interact with the world, we see how the world will interact with God's people, with persecution. And this morning we'll be looking at the verses immediately following the Beatitudes, So turn with me this this morning to Matthew 5, 13 through 16. And these few verses almost seem out of place. In Matthew 5, 1 through 12, we see Jesus as kind of this new Moses. He, He doesn't go up on a mountain, he goes up on the mountain. And then 
In verses 17 through 20 in Matthew, Jesus begins to explain how he had not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then tucked in the middle of these verses, Jesus stops to talk about salt and light. And it just seems random and out of place. But however, if we see 13 through 16 as a continuation of verses 1 through 12 and not as a separate line of thought, we will come to a better understanding of the point Jesus is trying to make. And the point, I believe, is this, that the righteousness of God, seen through the righteous living of God's people, will have an effect on the world. For some, as we have already seen in the Beatitudes, it will have a negative effect. People will not like it, and they will turn to persecution. But not all will have the same reaction to this gospel. For some, as we will see this morning in our verses, it will have a positive effect. Some will be saved. And it hit me this morning as I was preparing the lesson, reading over in my head, just how much this resembles or is in accord with the great two commandments, to love God and love neighbor. Jesus is warning of the coming persecution of his disciples, and he says, don't cower to it. When the persecution comes, be salt and be light. Be who you are. Because there is a harvest out there in that dark world, and I want you to collect. And we do so out of obedience to God because of our love for God and our love for neighbor. We go out into that world and collect the harvest. Which brings us to our two points this morning. In Matthew 5, 13 through 16, I only have two points, not three. We will see that as salt, we are to engage the world. That's the first point. It's Matthew 13. Then 14 through 16, are you ready for this? As light, we are to engage the world. Now, this isn't meant to be one of those sermons that I'm just going to tell you over and over to go tell your neighbors about Jesus. This is a sermon about evangelism, but it's not that type of sermon. This morning, through the authority, the, the, the word is the authority, not me, my job is to convict you to go tell your neighbors about Jesus. That as salt and light, we are to engage the world. So look at that first point with me, Matthew 5, 13. Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. And it's important to point out something here about that you and the the before salt. First of all, that you is plural. He's talking to his disciples amongst the crowd. And then we can say with security that he's talking through his disciples throughout the ages, all of the church. He's addressing them. And that you is what's called an emphatic you, meaning you and you alone are the salt. And then there's that the, the salt. You are the only salt. This is the only means by which people will be saved. Jesus is emphasizing to his disciples that they alone are the salt of the earth. There is no other presence in this world that can serve as these two things. And it's not that they will just hope to become salt or train to be salt. Jesus says, you are, you are that very moment, salt, and as we will see, light. But we have to stop. It seems random. What does Jesus mean by salt? And there are, after all, several different uses of salt in the Bible that we can go back and look to to help us with understanding that. And the first is a reference to salt as being seasoning. We put salt on our food to make it taste good. And Paul says in Colossians to let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. 
And Jesus does in this verse actually refer to salt with taste. But I think Jesus is getting to more than something that's just taste here. That salt has to serve a bigger purpose in this, this passage. Because as he had just mentioned, persecution is going to come to the disciples. So our message and our way of life is not always going to leave a good taste in people's mouth. Another use of salt during this time was as a preservative. So as a preservative, what does salt do? It stops decay. This was before the, the days of Frigidaire and Whirlpool were household names. And if you wanted your meat to last, you would cure it with salt. You would rub it over there and it would last. So you just think of those small town Kentucky general stores that you go into and those Kentucky hams are hanging from the ceiling. Right? They've been cured with salt and those things can last for over a year. I wouldn't try it myself, but it is amazing that a piece of meat can stay good for a year not being refrigerated. And I think that this is often the use most attributed to this text that as Christians we are to go out into a dying world and stop the decay. But I think it falls short of everything Jesus is getting to here. Yes, we're supposed to stop decay, but as Christians we're supposed to do more than that. The Christian message is not just a message, message of defeating death. What is it? It's a message of giving life. And Paul says it this way, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And Peter, uh, Peter says it this way, He himself, he bore our sins on the tree, and here's the death part, so that we might die to sin. But he doesn't stop there. He gives the life part so that we might live to righteousness. In his commentary on Sermon on the Mount, Charles Quarles suggests that in addition to being salt used as a metaphor for preserving, for stopping that decay, Jesus is also referencing salt as a purifying agent. And that's the thing that gives life. So salt can be seen in the Old Testament as a purifying agent for the offerings and rituals and covenants and the healing of the land. And to purify something is to make it better than what it was and to make it worthy of the purpose it's supposed to serve. As Christians, we are called to engage the world, to not only prevent death, but to give life. And I think overall, the church has been pretty productive in her mission. In his book, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born?, James Kennedy attributes the church with making more changes on earth for the good than any other movement or force in history. I'm just going to give you just a small sample of his list of the things that the church has done to enrich the earth. Hospitals, universities, education for the masses, capitalism, representative government, civil liberties, abolish of slavery, elevation of women, benevolence and, benevolence and charity, high standards for justice, high regard for human life, developments in art and music in the Codex or the Bound Book. So before all the scriptures were written on these large scrolls and independently, and you would just go to one scroll for one book and you just really couldn't travel with them and Christians really wanted something they could collect all the scriptures into one place, easy to go through, book to book, and you can travel with it. And so what developed was the Codex, the Bound Book. That's a pretty great con contribution to society, right? And I found it interesting that the first book to be published in America and to sell 3,500 copies was John Eliot's translation of the Bible into a Native American language in 1630s. 
That's fascinating. The first book in America was a translation of the Bible into the native American language. Now, everything on that list has had a positive influence on the world, but in and of themselves, outside the bound Bible, that is, they've only stopped decay, hospitals and education for the masses. But the church is not merely in just the earth enrichment business. In order to purify the earth and give its inhabitants life, we must preach the gospel because it's through that the Spirit gives life. And this past week, I had a really crazy dream. We were in Mississippi for Christmas, and I had this really crazy dream that Maddie and I were walking along the banks of the Ohio River. And out of nowhere, she jumps in, which I would expect my daughter to do. She loves to swim. But she jumps in the Ohio River, and she's swimming, and she gets about 10 feet outside of the banks. And out of nowhere, this great white shark appears. And this is the Ohio River. There's not supposed to be a shark in the Ohio River. It's a dream. How you interpret it, I don't know. But the shark really didn't seem to mind about Maddie, who was behind him. She was easy bait. His focus was on me, and he wanted to see what I would do. And here's the sad part. I couldn't do anything. I was so terrified and overcome with fear that I couldn't jump in the water to even sacrifice myself to save my daughter so she could swim to safety. I tried throwing rocks at it. I tried beating it with a stick. I, but it wouldn't move, but I just couldn't jump in. In real life, Maddie, I hope I would jump in, all right? But in this dream, I couldn't do it, and I woke up fearful and sad that I couldn't do something for somebody I loved so much. Now, here's the gospel. Here's the gospel that gives life, all right? You and I in that story, we are my daughter. We are in dangerous waters. Because of our sin, we have separated ourselves from safety, from God. And between he and I lies death. And here's the gospel. Jesus, safe on the shore, he looks out, and you know what he does? He jumps in. He jumps in, knowing there is imminent death and danger. He jumps in the water, sacrifices himself for us. And those who accept that and swim to safety are brought to safety and security and reconciliation to God and are given their life back. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that gives life. That's the gospel we want to preach to you this morning to start the year off. But the reality is, the world, and perhaps some of you this morning, you either refuse to admit you're in danger, or you reject the means by which Jesus has chosen to save you. And you just stay out there in the water, saying, I can either save myself or I'll find another way. Our job this morning, in reality, that there is still death in the world, is to continue preaching this gospel so you might see your only means of salvation. We are to be light and salt. And just in case we don't think it's necessary to preach the gospel, to live out the gospel, as followers of Jesus, he gives this warning. So look at the rest of verse 13. I hope it's not a fire alarm. As a fireman, I would say, please, we'll come back. But uh, verse 13, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, I know we all have that one salt shaker in our cabinets that we move around as we try to get a dish, and it just, it's been there for years, right? 
But if you were to pull that one salt shaker out that's been there for years and you put it on your finger and you gave it a little taste, it would still taste like salt. That's because the salt we use today is, is pure salt. It's made up of a simple compound known as sodium chloride. And it's a compound that produces that salty flavor. I don't know about you, I'm getting thirsty talking about this salt. But uh, that pure, stable sodium chloride will not, never lose its saltiness if it stays in that pure, pure compound, as a pure compound. However, the salt used in the region in times of Jesus was acquired through these salt marshes. And so those salt marshes would be exposed to rain and other forms of moisture and impurities, and that sodium chloride would be diluted. And once it's diluted, that taste can never be restored. And so they'd go to these salt marshes and get their salt and bring them home or buy them from the market, and they would have to sort out the good salt from the bad salt. And the bad salt that didn't have taste, they would just throw out, be trampled. Now, Jesus wasn't trying to give his disciples a class on the scientific makeup of salt. His point was very clear, was that his disciples must not become useless in their mission. That would be foolish of them to do, because light salt that loses its taste and has no value and is just tossed aside to be trampled, and that trampled there might be in reference to judgment, so too will those disciples who allow the world to dilute their effectiveness. And the purpose of the salt metaphor, and as we will see with light, is to encourage his disciples to not cower to the coming persecution. Jesus doesn't want the world's negative reaction to influence his disciples. He wants his disciples' positive influence to affect the world. Now, a few months ago, Mariah and I had the opportunity to get away. Her mom watched the kids, and we got to go to New Orleans for a few days, and it was great. And Burton, thanks for the recommendation on dinner. Um, as we were eating dinner one night, um, I was like, I'm going to make this an effective retreat. This is going to be a marriage retreat for us. So I started asking these questions. How am I doing as a husband? What can I do to better serve you, better serve our family? And she, oh, you're doing great. You work so hard for us. You're a great provider. And my ego is just being built up, you know. And I said, no, 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 lay it all out. This is your one chance. Not your one chance. You always tell me how I can be better. <laughs> but this is your one chance. You could just lay it all out and tell me how can I be a better husband. And she looked at me, and she cocked her head, and she said, well, <laughs> I knew it had come, right? With that long, drawn-out well, she said, there are times in our house when things are a little bit crazy, and you can imagine how crazy our house is with five kids under 10, nine, will be 10, how crazy times can be in our house. And she said, there are, during those crazy times that I could look at your face or your reaction and I can just tell that you don't want to be there. Oh. I should have just kept eating my gumbo and saved the enrichment talks for a later time. But I said, well, how does that make you feel? And she says, I feel lonely. I feel defeated. I need help. My, re my influence on her during those times was a negative influence. As her husband, I'm supposed to have a positive influence. I'm supposed to lead her to look more like Christ, to be more joyful. But I was failing in that area. Now, the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus des descri is describing and de is demanding a greater righteousness. A righteousness seen not only through our deeds, but one that comes from a pure heart a heart that has been transformed by the gospel of Christ. And this type of righteousness, 
whereas we see salt will have a positive influence on the earth. So I think we should stop and ask ourselves, what kind of influence do we have on those around us? Not only our immediate family, but our neighbors and our co-workers and the world. And then we have to ask ourselves, how engaged are we in the world anyway? And I'm not asking you how many Bible studies you attend or prayer groups you're in. All those things are good. But Christ has called us to be in the world for the sake of the world. And we don't want to be, as Charles Spurgeon would say, a dry land sailor. You know what a dry land sailor is? Useless. A sailor is supposed to be on a ship out at sea. As Christians, we're supposed to be out in the world. And I'll end with this first point. I'll end the first point with this. You know it's not good enough that people know that you are a Christian. They have to know why you are a Christian. Just because you are a Christian, just merely perhaps by the way you act or that you pray before a meal or two, it's not good enough. There's this guy that I'm around who constantly apologizes for cussing around me. And in one conversation, he might stop 10 times to apologize. And I'm like, buddy, your, your language is the least of my worries, and I know your life, it's the least of your worries too. But your faith will have an effect on people like that, right? That's a positive influence, but that's just stopping the decay. We want to actually give life. His not cussing doesn't do him a bit of good for his eternity. It's in my sharing the gospel of why I am the way I am that he will be saved. So we go out into the world with both word and deed to stop the decay and to give life. And this leads us to our second point this morning. As light, we are to gauge the world. Matt asked me this week what I wanted to title the sermon. I said, I so wish I could title it Salt and Pepper. But the, the metaphor that Jesus gives, the second thing, is light. So let's look at that. And Matt says, only if. Only if we could do that. Look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. So notice how this resembles 13. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Both give that same emphatic you, meaning you and you alone. And both give that definite article, the, you are the only salt and the only light. And it's because of these similarities, I think Jesus here is saying the same thing, only different. And we also see that with the word, word earth and world. It's, it's the same thing. And in both, Jesus warns of the foolishness of not being light or salt. And so by saying it again only a different way, I think Jesus is just building the point. He doesn't want his disciples to cower to the coming persecution. So he starts by telling them, you are salt. But salt is something small, and it can be hidden in plain sight. And so to make sure his disciples get the point, he stops and he says, you are the light of the world. Now light cannot be hidden in plain sight. It will be exposed and it will be distinct from darkness. And it's in this light metaphor that we have the clue of, of what salt and light really are. Because the light metaphor is steeped in both Old and New Testament allusions. It was God who led the Israelites to the promised land by a pillar of, fire, pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to give them light. And the law of God is referred to as the light to guide the path to those who cherish his instructions. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. And in the New Testament, we see that 
In Jesus, in him, was life, and the life was the light of men. And Jesus claims himself to be the light of the world. But I think the greatest clue for our understanding of what Jesus means by light here comes from a reference that Matthew just did in Matthew 4. It's what Todd quoted this morning from Isaiah 9. That the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Matthew attributes Jesus to fulfilling this prophecy that Jesus is the promised light to those who are dwelling in darkness. That there is a message of salvation. The light Jesus is referring to here in verse 15 is a message of salvation. We are the only light and the only salt of the world because Jesus is the only salvation for the world. Again, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, Charles Quarles points out that throughout the book of Isaiah, this is helpful, the light is a metaphor of the coming Messiah and his people, fulfilling the missionary purpose of manifesting both the glory of God to the nations for the salvation of the nations. But we're just a reflection of that light, right? When Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you are the light of the world, he is invoking the Great Commission. So right there in Matthew 5, we don't have to wait till Matthew 28 to see what Jesus has in store for his disciples. You are the light of the world. You are the ones who I am going to send out with this gospel message to reach the ends of the earth. And I pointed out earlier that that you statement means it's something that the disciples already are. It's not something they have to wait for. And this is our key to evangelism. Jonathan Edwards once said, There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. Meaning, you don't have a desire for honey if you just know or have heard that honey is sweet. It's only after you taste that sweetness do you have a longing for it. And our gospel witness comes as a result of our experiencing Christ. And we first experience Christ, it's in our salvation. And I would say most of us, when we are first saved, we are on fire for the Lord. We want to tell everybody about this good news that we just received. Because we had just experienced Christ. I know when I was 13, I had become a believer. I instantly went out to the Southeast Christian Church bookstore, and I bought this shirt that was kind of a knockoff of the Reebok slogan, Life is Short, Play Hard. Only mine said, Life is Short, Pray Hard. And I was 13, I went and I wore it to public school a couple times a week, and I was unashamed for the gospel. I just experienced him, and I want everybody to know I'm a Christian, and here's why. But over time, that zeal for missions or evangelism kind of wore off. My love for him didn't wear off, but that zeal did. And I think we all experience those moments of hot and cold when it comes to our outreach, don't we? Why is that? And how can we prevent that from happening? And you know one thing I'm about to say, and it's the most obvious. Our desire to share Christ comes from whether or not we are in his word. Because it's in his word that we meet God. And we learn about God, and we see who God is, and we grow in his word, and we want to share it with others. And that's because the word is active, and it engages our heart. So we need to start there. We need to be in his word daily. But the point of knowing God is to make God known. We are commissioned with filling the earth with God's glory by making him known. And it's in that making him known part that we have another means of experiencing Christ. It's just not at salvation. 
Jesus is talking about salt and light here as a metaphor for the Christian witness, both in word and deed. A witness he warns, what, three times in the Beatitudes will bring persecution. And here's where we need the author of Hebrews to step in and help us. Hebrews 13, 13 says this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. There's so much there to chew on. But where is that suffering? Where is that reproach? It's outside the camp. It's outside these doors. It's outside the doors of your house. It's outside the security and the safety. And it will be there outside the camp in bearing that same reproach that Christ endured that we will more fully be able to identify with Christ because we are identifying with his suffering. And the more we get of that, do you notice how he said, blessed are those who are persecuted? Persecution is a blessing. Because the more we get of it, the more we hunger and thirst for him. It's because the more we know him, sharing in his suffering. And the more we know him, the more we want to share that goodness. It's that difference between having knowledge that honey is sweet and tasting that sweetness for yourself. We don't want to just be those people who keep taking in the Bible and not have an outlet to share it. You know how good it feels to share Jesus with somebody? It's a rush, I think it's fair to say. It's better than any roller coaster. You go into it just all bound up, nervous and fearful and almost ashamed at times because what are they going to say? Are they going to believe that I believe in a guy who rose from the dead is going to return? I'm going to look foolish to them? But once you start talking and your mouth starts moving and you start testifying to what Christ has done in your life, what Christ sacrificed for you, all those fears just go away, don't they? And every time I share Jesus with somebody, you know what I do? I call my wife when I leave, and I'm just, I praise God because just, it just burns through you. You have to share that goodness with somebody. Paul was always outside the camp, wasn't he? Paul was always suffering for Jesus. And despite that suffering, what was Paul's outlook on evangelism? Woe is me if I do not preach Christ. That's a sign of a man who's filled with Christ. It's a man who is filled with light. That light came from always experiencing that suffering. Because he knew Christ every day because he felt that suffering. Some of us this morning may feel like our light is a little dim. Right? And you don't know what's going on. You've got all these boxes to check. I'm in God's word. I'm not really suffering or any grievous sins in my life. I'm repenting of everything that I'm sinning of. I'm going to church every Sunday and Wednesday. I'm in prayer group. I'm in small group. I just, my light's like that big right now. I'm not on fire for Lord. Well, if that's you this morning, I think it would do you a little good to go outside the camp. Evaluate your life and see how much you are involved in the world. How much you're sharing for Jesus. How much you're suffering for Jesus. Reproach and revile. Because I think it will be there that your light's going to grow. 
I think we should all examine our lives this morning. As we close out these verses, we see the purpose of the light. It's to shine for all to see. So look at that last verse, or verse 15 for me. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and gives light to all in the house. So Jerusalem in the Bible was always a city people went up to. Right? When you read it and you see Jerusalem, people always went up to Jerusalem. That's because it's set on a hill. It's elevated above all the, all the cities. And so you just think of yourself, you're a sojourner this time, and you're walking through the desert. You're on your way to Jerusalem, perhaps returning or going to the temple, but you're traveling at night. You're in the dangerous desert, but from a distance, you see the light, the glow of this city that sits on a hill. And what do you instantly think? Well, behind those walls that I could see the light, is security, food, shelter, perhaps family. God is in the temple. And that light of the city, elevated, would permeate throughout the darkness. The darkness couldn't control it. And that's the point Jesus is trying to make here. And that light cannot be hidden at night. And that's why Jesus talks about hiding light twice in this passage. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And how foolish would it be to hide a lamp in a basket when it's supposed to be used as a light for the house for all to see? Light exposes darkness and it enables us to, to function properly. It would be foolish to put yourself in danger by hiding this light. And I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. For those of you who aspire to be preachers, if you're working on a sermon, never look what Charles Spurgeon says because you, you won't be happy with your sermon after you read his. Right? But nobody can be Charles Spurgeon Again, or Lord, maybe, or Lord willing, there will be another Charles Spurgeon, but he's great. But he says this, the first thing in a Christian is his Christianity. The chief business of one whom God has called is that he should live as the elect of God. Look at Christ. He was a carpenter, but I confess I seldom think of him as such. It is as savior of men and the servant of God that he comes before my mind. And thus, a Christian man ought to live so. If he is a carpenter, the Christian swallows up the carpenter. And if he is a businessman or a man of letters or an orator, he ought to live in such a manner, and conspicuous fact about him is that he is a Christian. He is a lamp, and his business is to shine. Our business is to shine. And our light is most visible in the darkness because it is there, it's distinct. If, as Spurgeon says, our business is to shine, we see the point of the business in verse 16. Look at that passage verse with me. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Just as a lamp is to sit on a stand for all in the house to see, so too must our light be visible in the world and not hidden out of fear. Jesus refers to our light here as good works. Isn't that encouraging? Don't people think you're weird at work? Doesn't the world look at us and just, ah, who wants to live like that? But Jesus looks at the way you live and he said, those are good works. What makes them good works? You are the light of life. They're good works because our works give life. Not only in word, but in deed. And the world doesn't see this goodness because they're blind to it. And don't forget, humble yourself. Remember, you are blind to this too. 
And we have been called to bring light to that darkness. But what should those works look like? What does true light look like? If we are but a reflection of this light, we should know what that light looks like. And I love and am proud of my wife, Mariah, who, as Matt said, is leading that Kimwood Bible study on Colossians. I'm proud of what she taught this week. And this is what she said. In regards to Christ, she said this. If you want to know what God is like, read the Gospels. He touched people considered untouchable and made them touchable. He got angry at greed and materialism and self-righteousness and outward forms of seeming holy and turned over tables. He fed the multitudes when they were hungry. He cried for his friends over death. He calmed the storms and walked on water. He ate with outcasts and worst of sinners and called them righteous because of their faith. He led a scraggly bunch of fishermen and tax collectors around, teaching them and making them his instruments to change the world. That's what light looks like. Jesus didn't come to surround himself with the elite, religious elite of the day. He didn't hide in the synagogues and temples and said, all come to me. Jesus went out and served them. He served the sinners and the outcasts. Jesus was in the world. So we have to say, if our light is to reflect that light, are we out in the world? Do we just surround ourselves with Christians daily and not engaging the world? This past November, I, I read a great article titled, The Day We Ran Out of Food. And this article really struck a chord with me because I didn't grow up poor but I did grow up lower middle class, and I remember those times, you're probably three or four days out for the next paycheck, and you just had to stretch that, those last few meals, right? And so this article struck a chord with me, and I just want to read it with you. It's brief. When I was only five years old, our family hit hard times, and we didn't even have money for groceries. I wasn't sure exactly what was going on. All I knew was that the cabinets were empty, on that day we ran out of food, a couple from Main Street Baptist Church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, drove up to our house in a big car. We didn't know them, and we didn't go to Main Street Baptist. In fact, we weren't even Baptist. They popped the trunk and began unloading bag after bag of groceries. I'm pretty sure it was summertime, but it felt like Christmas, especially when I realized that they had gotten us Fruit Loops. I sat down on the couch and began looking over the box like it was a toy. Then after they finished delivering all the groceries, they left, and we ate. I don't know how they found out that we were in need, and it doesn't really matter to me. We needed some food, and I'm just thankful that someone listened when the Lord nudged them to come through for us. When you think about it, we all have the opportunity to be the answers to someone else's prayers today. Maybe they don't need groceries, but they need some encouragement, a friend, an invitation, someone to listen to. Maybe they don't, don't even know they were in need. They're just hurting and need someone like you to be present in their life. Maybe we will be the evidence that Jesus sees them in their hurt and deeply cares for them. So many of us pray that God will use us in a big way. What if he wants to use us in a small way that is big in someone's life? Isn't that enough? If it is, then today is full of opportunities to love Jesus with an unexpected knock on the door an open trunk, and a box of Fruit Loops. 
It's so encouraging. I'm going to end this morning. I'm sure many of us have some New Year's resolutions. It's the first Sunday of 2018. We want to eat better, work out, lose weight, pay off debt. I think we'd all benefit by resolving to be more engaging in the world this year. We don't want to be, as John Stott says, those rabbit hole Christians, those Christians who scurry through the world real fast just to jump in the hole because it's safe and it's secure. We want to be those Christians who are out in the world, even though it is dangerous. It involves righteous living and sharing what Paul calls the first importance. And we share these three things, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. And I guarantee you this, you will not regret sharing that message. But we will all look back on that side of eternity and regret that we didn't share it more. So this year, let's gather together weekly, pray for each other, but let's send each other out into the world. Let's be a little more salt and a little more light. Let's pray. Father, we pray that simple prayer that we have been called into the world for the sake of the world to reflect your love that we have come to know through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, you are not here with us, but you have sent your comforter. And we pray that we are filled with that every day, filled with your love and knowledge. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.